0: we we'll turn with me this morning in God's word to the book of 2nd Corinthians, chapter 6, verse 14. We'll read down to chapter 7, verse 1. 2nd Corinthians, chapter 6, verse 14, reading together down through chapter 7, verse 1. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers... For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Your word is truth. And Lord, we thank you for the chance we have as your church to hear it spoken. And pray now that you would come and Holy Spirit be with my lips. Enable me by your grace to communicate your word effectively. And Lord, be with us as we hear it spoken. Open our hearts and may we hear and may the word transform us. We pray, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen. Title of the sermon this morning called to be holy. Now, that may sound like a daunting title, may even sound like one that's intimidating because holiness is something, quite frankly, that we don't really hear often. In today's world. It's something that uh, it's a term that uh, we're not that comfortable with. It's a term that different people have defined it differently. Some people in a way that does harm to the biblical definition. Some have defined it in a way that communicates a gospel other than the gospel of Christ. And so when we think of holiness, for many of us, we do not have a biblical appreciation for the word and therefore do not have an understanding of what it means to be called as a holy people. Uh, The church in Corinth, and this is the church to whom the Apostle Paul wrote these two epistles, this is the second of those epistles, they were a church very similar, I would say, as you and I, even though the church there was an ancient one. Uh, It was in a foreign part of the world, but in all reality, it would not seem that ancient or foreign to you and I. It was a church that struggled with differentiating the faith of the gospel from the broader culture in which they lived. It was a church that struggled with sexuality, a church that struggled with the definition of sexuality and what biblical sexuality looked like. And it was a church that struggled with the teaching of the gospel, with believing that they truly are called to be holy and knowing what this means and knowing what this looks like. The Apostle Paul admonished them early on in chapter 4, verse 7, that even though we have this great calling, even though we have been the heirs of this great salvation, that we have this treasure in earthen vessels, in jars of clay. He says that uh, in chapter 4, verse 7. That God might make known the surpassing power of his love and of his grace through us and in us as his people. The church in Corinth dealt with materialism. In fact, the city of Corinth back then during the Roman period was the capital of of Greece and it was a place that was a melting pot of various ethnicities, both Greeks and Jews and Romans all lived there and various ethics, various morals, various interpretations of what was the right and wrong way to live. And so it was in this context that the Apostle Paul pushed back not only on a misunderstanding of biblical sexuality, a definition which would have been biblically unacceptable, but also he pushed back on this overwhelming context of materialism. We see this throughout the second epistle of Corinthians, that the church there in Corinth lived in a world that was obsessed with what they could touch, with the material, with what could be handled And he gives them this admonishment again in chapter 4, verse 18. He says, the things that are seen are transient, they are passing, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So he gives them a firm rock before he tells them about their sacred calling. He lets them know that the things that are seen, the things that can be handled, are passing. They're part of the created order. But there is a calling that the church has, both then and now, which is eternal, It is a nature, it is a call to which all God's people are called to. It is the call to be holy. So this brings me to the first point, uh, which the notes are there in your bulletin. Uh, If you care to follow along, the first point is really the distinction of holiness. Holiness is distinct. When we think of holiness and we try to define it, and it needs definition in today's world, even within the church... It seems like an archaic term to our generation. One that we have relinquished to the sarcophagus of antiquated words. Something that perhaps belongs more in a linguistic museum than in the everyday life of modern man. It's easier to talk about holiness on a theological level. Because truly, when we, when we want to boil everything down, only God is holy. In fact, throughout scripture, whenever the term holy is used, it is either used in the context of associated with the temple of God in Jerusalem, we see this in the law, Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers, etc., or it's ascribed to God. And you'll remember the vision of of Isaiah and of Ezekiel, of the prophets, where they saw God high and lifted up, and the train of his temple filled, or the train of his glory filled the temple, and the heavenly beings declared, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty." So from the get-go, we know that God is the superlative, that he is holy and he alone. He alone is independent in his holiness. What do I mean by that? I mean that when we think of defining holiness, we have to first begin with a characteristic of who God is. Everything that is right, everything that is pure, everything that is holy. In fact, Psalms tells us, Psalms 29.2, that God is surrounded with the splendor of holiness, as if a cloud that cannot be penetrated or known. He is totally other. He has created us for his glory. He has created us in his likeness, but yet he remains totally different and other from mankind. So Paul begins his definition of holiness not with defining what it is, necessarily, but by providing a contrast, a statement to clarify what it is not. And so he begins by saying that we should not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, this Text has been appropriately applied to marriages, that people who are believers should not marry those who are not, but really the context of it is much greater. It's not limited to marriages, it's limited, or, or rather it is expanded to all of our interaction. Now, it may seem like an exclusive phrase that we are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. In fact, it's the only time in the Greek New Testament that this phrase unequally yoked occurs in this particular passage or or throughout the New Testament. However, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the Greek word that is here translated as unequally yoked in two different locations. And I point that out because it's important for us to understand what the Apostle Paul is really communicating by this term unequally yoked. The first location is Leviticus 19.19 where the law commands that we are not to sow our crops, our fields, with diverse seed. Now, that may seem mundane, it may seem meaningless, but that's the point that Leviticus is making, that we are not to sow our crops with seeds of a diverse kind. And then in Deuteronomy 22.10, he uses this word, unequally yoked, and says, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. So the idea conveyed in both verses is that of two beasts of burden or two seeds of the field that have competing interests and that grow in different directions. And so ultimately what the Apostle Paul is communicating is that righteousness cannot be yoked with unrighteousness because at their very core they're going two different directions. And we see this fleshed out later when we look at the following verses. Ultimately unrighteousness pursues our own agenda, our own desire. It endeavors to usurp ourself on the throne of God. It endeavors to put our whim, our wishes at the center of all of reality instead of allotting to God his rightful place on the throne of eternity. To plow with both, an ox and a donkey for instance, would result in one dragging the other or both attempting to go in different directions. And if any of you have ever spent time with an ox or a donkey, you understand what I mean. An ox is very strong, uh, very, can be stubborn, but a, a donkey can be uh, stubborn as well. Not as strong, but very stubborn. And so they, if they go in two different directions, then the ability to uh, reap any success, any benefit from plying with the two together is moot. And so the Apostle Paul begins by defining holiness by contrasting the way that we are to live with the way that we are not to live. He says, do not be unequally yoked together. But then he continues this theme by saying, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? He's going here from a level of high companionship on a reverse gradated scale down to really a humble interaction. He begins with being yoked together. That righteousness and unrighteousness cannot be yoked together. Then he continues on by saying, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? And Belial there is a a term that is um, meant to reference evil. The prince of evil in fact you may recall that in the gospels uh, satan is referred to as the prince of belial the prince of the power of the air so the contrast there is that there is no relationship between christ and evil or christ and the enemy of god and the greek word translated here as a chord is actually the word symphonesis which is where we get the english word symphony And it has to do with all instruments, even if they're playing a different note, even if they're making a different sound, being in harmony one with another. It's a pleasing sound. Even though different notes are being played, they're played on a scale, and so it's a pleasing combination, a pleasing arrangement of different notes. So what Paul is saying is that it's impossible to have righteousness and unrighteousness together and it be a beautiful noise, a beautiful sound. The two cannot be in harmony one with another. So the distinguishing characteristic of holiness is that it is distinct from all other goodness. It is incompatible with every other goodness in this world because it is both distinct in its nature and in its direction. Holiness is not simply goodness. Holiness is Godness. It is not an inclination that drives us towards ourself and the fulfillment of our own desires, but rather it is a longing and a desire for God to be glorified and God to be honored in our lives. The two are incompatible. Unrighteousness and righteousness. I grew up in southeast Missouri. And in southeast Missouri, 20 or 30 years ago, it was not uncommon for the countryside to be littered with, uh, with cotton fields. In fact, southeast Missouri was known at one time about 75 to 100 years ago for its cotton crops. But in the mid-80s, in fact, I remember driving down county roads and looking to the right and the left, and I don't know if you all have ever seen this, maybe if you're from Mississippi you have, but uh, just seeing large bells of cotton, this white bushy cotton. And uh, that's part of my early memories as as a child. Well, in the mid-80s, the cotton fields began to increasingly disappear. And the reason why I was told is because a certain group of farmers got together and decided that they could make more money by raising rice than they could cotton. And so they started planting cotton crops. But in the beginning, they wanted to have both because the maximum benefit they could achieve on the market was if they did both, both cotton and rice. But what they found is that when they converted their crops to rice paddies, the fertilizer that rice needs kills cotton. So what feeds the other actually kills their original crop. And so today, if you go to Southeast Missouri, it's, uh, you're, you're hard pressed to find a, a cotton field. It's very difficult to do so. And this tells us something, I believe, at what the Apostle Paul is hinting at here in the text, that by its very nature. Holiness is exclusive, and what feeds holiness in our lives kills sin, and what feeds sin kills holiness. So we begin with this superlative, we begin with this truth that only God is holy, and then we continue on to the reality that we are called to be holy, and the definition of it here in the first part of our text is provided by contrast, by way of contrast as to what holiness is and what it is not. But then the Apostle Paul takes it one step further. And this is part two there, point two there in your notes if you're following along. He reaches the climax, the crescendo of his definition of holiness. When he makes a profound statement at the very end of verse 16. He says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Now, The profoundness of that statement is somewhat lost on us for two reasons. One, most of us, at least, are not Jewish. And number two, all of us are not living when the temple still stood. But if you think about when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, it was written when the Jerusalem temple was still standing. And as a Jew, there was no more sacred place on earth than the temple. There was no more holy of a location than the temple. In fact, the temple was divided into three rooms, the holy place, the outer court, and the very holy of holies. The holy of holies was where God's presence dwelled among his people. And so the apostle Paul, being a good Jew, living when the temple still stood in Jerusalem, writes to this Corinthian church who's vexed with promiscuity, with understanding the difference between the gospel and the culture at large, with differentiating between their calling as a chosen people, a holy nation, and they're longing to continue to fulfill their own desires, he speaks a clarion voice in the context of that culture and says, you are the temple of God. He takes the concept of holiness from being totally other and puts it in ways that are very mundane, that are very day-to-day, and that are very profound. He says, we are the temple of God. Of the living God. Now, to really understand why this is the crescendo or the climax of, of Paul's definition of holiness, we need to ask ourselves, what was the temple in scripture? And we go all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 prior to the fall. We see that God walked with man in the cool of the day and had intimate fellowship. His presence abode here at, its, at a level of fellowship which was lost when man sinned. But from Genesis 3 onward, God initiates a covenant with his people, an agreement, inviting them to be his people and for him to be their God. And so this this edifice, this tabernacle in the wilderness and later this temple there in Jerusalem, it was a symbol, it was a house where God and man could break bread together. It was a place where that which was lost could be restored, where that which was designed the original intention of man, the original design of man to live with God, to glorify God in our lives, some sense of restoration could be accomplished in the temple. Man and God could break bread together. Now, it's important for us to understand why the Apostle Paul reaches his climax here, talking about the temple. Because remember the gospel teaches Christ himself was reprimanded by the Jewish elders and Jewish leaders of the day because he told them, they said, what sign do you give us that you are the son of God, that you are the Christ? And he said, I'm going to tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days. And they said, well, our fathers were more than 40 years building this temple. How do you intend to tear it down and rebuild it in three days? And John's gospel tells us that he spoke of the temple of his own body. So that Christ when he died, became the first fruits. What do I mean? He became the new ultimate man. He became the one in whose image we are being transformed as the son of God. He became the means for us to be reconciled to God. And the apostle Paul is very clear that the righteousness of Christ, that Christ demonstrated in his life here on earth when he said, I am the temple, I'll tear it down and rebuild it in three days, that that righteousness is conveyed, is imputed, is transferred to you and I as his children. So that we do not begin with the definition of holiness that says thou shalt, but we begin with the definition of holiness that says come and dine. You see, this is where oftentimes as Christians we go astray. We have this idea that holiness begins with the command thou shalt not or thou shalt. But Paul tells us that holiness begins with the reality that we are the temple of God. And so that is contrasted. When Christ tells us to come, he tells us to come and dine, to come and receive the righteousness, the benefit of that righteousness which he has accomplished on our behalf. This is why whenever we look at holiness as it is defined in the Old Testament, for instance, the book of Leviticus, which has a lot to say about holiness, we see there that it is not an intrinsic value that is independent from God, only God is independently holy. Instead, holiness is defined in the book of Leviticus as the extent to one's usefulness in the biblically prescribed worship of God. So when you and I think of holiness as it is defined in Scripture, it's not thou shalt not, but rather it begins with you are. Even the Ten Commandments begin with the statement, I am the Lord your God. Who have called you out of the land of Egypt a relationship an invitation to be who you are to reflect the glory that Christ has already set upon you Paul references justification here by telling them that we are the temple of God and then he gives them a challenge to sanctification when he tells them how we should demonstrate the call to holiness but before we move there I want to make this point because it's a point where oftentimes you and I lose the battle Any understanding of holiness that begins with what we are called from instead of what we are called to will result in legalism and self-righteousness. Any understanding of holiness that begins with what we are called from that focuses on what we should not do instead of what we are called to, that we are the temple of God, therefore all of our life belongs to him. We should live our life in worship to him and honoring him in everything that we do, say, and think. That becomes the basis of our holiness, the foundation. However, and I'll go on a little bit further to say, any definition of holiness that does not address the exclusivity of what we are called to, not simply that we are called to something and by implication away from something, but any definition of holiness that does not emphasize the exclusivity of what we are called to will fail to grasp the enormity the enormous nature of our calling as sons and daughters of God as a fallen people living in a fallen world we learn to define these difficult characteristics these difficult terms by way of contrast and so the apostle Paul is taking us by the hand here in the text in helping us to do that But then he demonstrates holiness to us. He doesn't stop with the reality that we are the temple of God. He goes on there in point three of your notes, the demonstration of holiness is given to us at the end of verse 16 and then again in verses 17, 18, and verse one of chapter seven. This is where holiness is lived out in daily life. If we are called to be holy, then what does this look like? If we are called to live as the temple of God in this earth, what does it look like? What does it mean for a businessman? What does it mean for a teacher? What does it mean for a pastor? What does it mean for a stay-at-home mom? What does it look like to demonstrate holiness in every aspect of our life? Well, the first thing the Apostle Paul does is he quotes a verse which summarizes for us the Old Testament and New Testament purpose of god's redemptive plan the first part of verse 16 he's quoting from the book of leviticus and he says i will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and i will be their god and they shall be my people what is god's and what's the bible all about what is god's design for mankind summarized there in the in that verse that god would make his dwelling among us That he would walk among us and be our God and that we would be his people. Now, how is that reality accomplished in the life of a believer? How is that reality accomplished at all? It's accomplished by one way. He's still here talking about our justification. What's that word mean? Oftentimes we we use these words that uh, we have to define. Justification is the act of God declaring us innocent from all sin and all unrighteousness. When we stand before his his dais of judgment, when we stand before his throne, he does not see sin in us. He only sees righteousness. Now, you and I know that's not us. We are, even on our best days, far from holy. Even on our best days, far from righteous. On our own. So we, from the get-go, know that what Paul is establishing here is a foundation first of justification, that we are righteous only because of the righteousness of Christ that's assigned to us, that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. And secondly, because of that, we are instructed how we should live. That we are not to obey the law, that we are not to pursue holiness to be accepted by God, but we are to be holy because we're already accepted. That's the glorious truth of the gospel. And so I want to say to you that if you are not a believer, if you have never trusted Christ for righteousness, I challenge you and I encourage you as you listen to the Apostle Paul to look to Jesus, the only righteous one, not your own righteousness, not your own goodness, not your ability to be good or to be holy, because we will fall far short, but rather to look to him and his finished work on our behalf, so that we can be accepted as a temple of God in his presence. Now, moving on to sanctification. Again, another term that we use, which simply means growth in righteousness. That as we live the godly life, that we demonstrate before others this call to holiness. That's what sanctification is. Well, how do we understand that? How do we implement that in our lives? Paul says again, verse 17 and 18, Go out from their midst... And he's quoting here Isaiah chapter 52, verse 11, that is written to the people of God when they are in Babylon. When they've been taken there into Babylonian captivity, the city of Jerusalem has been destroyed, the temple of God is in ruins, the holy place has been desecrated, and the prophet Isaiah writes to them and says that they bear. This is not here quoted in the text, but if you were to read Isaiah 52, you know that Isaiah tells them they are the ones who bear, not the temple, but they themselves bear the vessels, the holy vessels of God. So Paul tells the church of Corinth and also you and I, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing that I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So holiness is demonstrated by God's people when there is a distinct separation between the direction we're going and the direction that others are going. It's not so much in your appearance. Even though Christ, the apostles, tell us to adorn ourselves modestly, etc. It's not so much in your appearance as it is in you. In fact, it's not in your appearance at all. It's in your direction, where you are going, why you are living the life that you're living. Is it for yourself to accomplish your own ends? Or is it because you understand that you are a temple? That you are a holy place? That God abides in you through his Holy Spirit and that Christ is doing a work reconciling the world to Himself through Christ, and then giving to us the ministry of reconciliation. So that as temples of God living on earth, we go about redeeming everything our hands touch. That's our call. That's our mission. And so if we follow the same agenda as the unbeliever and as the world around us, then we are not redeeming society, we are not redeeming culture, we are desecrating the temple. We're not living as those who are called to be holy, but rather allowing the unholiness of this world to dictate to us the terms of our engagement. Holiness is demonstrated by the people of God when we allow an authority other than pop culture or social norms to determine how we live and whom we worship. And that authority is scripture. That authority is Christ. Biblical holiness is demonstrated in the life of a believer when we, out of an awareness of the reality that we are the temple of the living God, work to bring God's kingdom to bear on every area of our lives. Holiness is demonstrated when we, as businessmen, as mothers, as pastors, as teachers, as students, as men, women, and children, when we, in whatever vocation or area of life that we live in, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And we do that by first asking ourselves the question, what direction are we heading? Ultimately, this will, as our culture and as the world around us, increasingly becomes more estranged or distanced from the value shared by a Christian consensus, this will inevitably place us at odds with the world around us. But it will place us in harmony with the king within us. Because this king is one who requires, who demands exclusive allegiance. And we cannot be yoked with the unrighteousness of this world and seek the righteousness of Christ. In a world that is obsessed with materialism, we might be tempted to think that holiness is something that only touches our, the world that we see, our, our body our the outside. And I know that if any of you have ever had an experience with holiness movements, I was raised in one that's oftentimes where they denigrate to the point of focusing on the way you dress, the way you talk, the way you walk, what you do and you do not do. Instead of focusing on the direction that you are pointing. See, if you have the imperative of scripture, the commands to live holy, apart from the reality that you and I are already holy holy with the holiness of Christ, then you will seek to accomplish the first at the expense of negating the second. But if we first understand that we are holy because Christ has given us his very own righteousness and we are in him and he is in us, then we have a firm foundation for moving forward and living out a call to reflect the one to whom we belong. So as you and I live and we struggle in this world of materialism, let us not be deceived. And this is ultimately what the apostle Paul is getting at in chapter seven, verse one. When he says that we have these promises, beloved, and he goes on to say, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. He's not separating there between things that we do that only defile the body and things we do that only defile the spirit. Because when you think of holiness, there's no easy or there's no true way to separate sin and its effect on your spirit versus its effect on your body. Sin affects your whole man. Sin defiles every ounce, every inch of who you are. So ultimately, what the Apostle Paul is doing is the exact opposite. He's saying that we are to cleanse ourselves, even in the midst of a materialistic society, that we are to cleanse ourselves by allowing not only our physical, but also our spiritual, everything that we are, to be dictated to by the sovereign will of God as expressed in Scripture. And so by way of conclusion and application, when we come back around to the question, what does it look like for holiness to be demonstrated in the life of a believer? When you go home this afternoon, when you get up and you celebrate Memorial Day tomorrow morning, when you go to work on Tuesday or you go on vacation or whatever you do, what does it look like to demonstrate this holiness to which we are called? As believers, we should live every day under the authority of God, seeking to make every aspect of our lives set apart, consecrated for him. Our vocation, our hobbies, our career, our sexuality, our interpersonal relationships, every aspect of who we are is under the dominion and the authority of this God with whom we have to do. And we should see that consecration ultimately, at the end of the day, is really a joining together of our efforts with the greater mission of God. And so when we ask ourselves the question, what does it look like for holiness to be demonstrated in my life, in my mundane world, then I'll ask you, what are the characteristics of your mundane world? What are the things that you do with your time? What's the vocation that you have? It doesn't have to be a lofty one. I often think of vocation and the doctrine of vocation that is given to us in scripture and I place myself in the position of somebody who uh, takes out garbage or, or picks up the garbage for a local municipality. And I ask myself, if that were my job, how could I bring the kingdom to bear on what I do? Because if I truly believe that there's no aspect of my life that is outside the sovereign rule and dominion of God, then I will ask myself that question. Or if I'm a mother or a father or both a mother and a father who's working full time and and employed in other endeavors of life outside the home or otherwise, then I'll ask myself the question, when I do what I do, what direction am I going? Am I working so that God's kingdom can be lived out through me and in me or am I laboring to build a kingdom of my own? Am I working so that Christ can indeed be my master and so that I can demonstrate this holy calling? And again, don't think of holiness as being something afar off or foreign, but think of it as simply being the degree to which we as the church are useful in the worship of God. Because when we think of sanctification, that's its biblical definition. But it begins with justification. It begins with an awareness of knowing that we are holy because he is holy, and he has made us holy through his son, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we rejoice this morning in the call that we have, the call of the gospel, that we are not to endeavor to build a world and a kingdom of our own, but we are to seek first your righteousness. We thank you first and foremost, Lord Jesus, that you and your holiness is the very definition of holiness. Lord, that you are independently holy and that when you call us to a life of holiness, it is a dependent holiness, that we are dependent on you and our relationship with you to demonstrate that holiness. Lord Jesus, we are ever grateful for your sacrifice, for your perfect life that satisfies the require of obedience to the law and for your sacrificial death that atones for our sins. And we pray, O oh God, that you would endeavor, that you would by your grace enable us to endeavor to be what you've called us to be, to reflect our calling as temples of God on this earth and in this culture. We rejoice, O oh God, in your love. In Jesus' name, amen.